Chapter twenty four of In the Schoolroom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. In the Schoolroom by John S. Hart. Chapter twenty four. Normal Schools. The term normal school is an unfortunate misnomer, and its general adoption has led to much confusion of ideas. The word normal, from the Latin norma, a rule or pattern to work by, does not differ essentially from model. A normal school, according to the meaning of the word, would be a pattern school, an institution which could be held up for imitation, to be copied by other schools of the same grade. But this meaning of the word is not what we mean by the thing. When we mean a school to be copied or imitated, we call it a model school. Here the name and the thing agree. The name explains the thing. It is very different when we speak of a normal school. To the uninitiated, the term either conveys no meaning at all, or, if your hearer is a man of letters, it conveys to him an idea which you have at once to explain away. You have to tell him, in effect, that a normal school is not a normal school, and then that it is something else, which the word does not in the least describe. What, then, do we mean by a normal school? What is the thing that we have called by this unfortunate name? A normal school is a seminary for the professional education of teachers. It is an institution in which those who wish to become teachers learn how to do their work, in which they learn not reading, but how to teach reading, not penmanship, but how to teach penmanship, not grammar, but how to teach grammar, not geography, but how to teach geography, not arithmetic, but how to teach arithmetic. The idea which lies at the basis of such an institute is that knowing a thing, and knowing how to teach that thing to others, are distinguishable and very different facts. The knowledge of the subjects to be taught may be gained at any school. In order to give the teacher's seminary its full power and efficiency, it were greatly to be desired that the subjects themselves, as mere matters of knowledge, should first be learned elsewhere, before entering the teacher's school. This latter would then have to do only with its own special function, that of showing its matriculants how to use these materials in the process of teaching. Unfortunately, we have not yet made such progress in popular education as to be able to separate these two functions to the extent that is desirable. Many of those who attend a teacher's seminary come to it lamentably ignorant of the common branches of knowledge. They have consequently first to study these branches in the normal school as they would study them in any other school. That is, they have first to learn the facts as matters of knowledge, and then to study the art and science of teaching these facts to others. Instead of coming with the brick and mortar ready prepared, that they may be instructed in the use of the trowel and the plumb line, they have to make their brick and mix their mortar after they enter the institution. This is undoubtedly a drawback and a misfortune, but it cannot be helped at present. All we can do is to define clearly the true idea of the teacher's school, and then to work towards it as fast as we can. A normal school is essentially unlike any other school. It has been compared, indeed, to those professional schools which are for the study of law, divinity, medicine, mining, engineering, and so forth. The normal school, it is true, is like these schools in one respect. It is established with reference to the wants of a particular profession. It is a professional school. But those schools have for their main object the communication of some particular branch of science. 
They teach law, divinity, medicine, mining, or engineering. They aim to make lawyers, divines, physicians, miners, engineers, not teachers of these branches. The professor in the law school aims not to make professors of law, but lawyers. The medical professor aims not to make medical lecturers, but practitioners. To render these institutions analogous to the teacher's seminary, their pupils should first study law, medicine, engineering, and so forth, and then sit at the feet of their Gamaliels to be initiated into the secrets of the professorial chair, that they may in turn become professors of those branches to classes of their own. Nor would such a plan, if it were possible, be altogether without its value. It surely needs no demonstration to prove that in the highest departments, no less than in the lowest, something more than knowledge is needed in order to teach. An understanding of how to communicate one's knowledge, and practical skill in doing it, are as necessary in teaching theology, metaphysics, languages, infinitesimal analysis, or chemistry, as they are in teaching the alphabet. If there are bunglers, who know not how to go to work, to teach a child its letters, or to open its young mind and heart to the reception of truth, whose schoolrooms are places where the young mind and heart are in a state either of perpetual torpor or of perpetual nightmare, have these bunglers no analogues in the men of ponderous erudition that sometimes fill the professor's chair? Have we no examples, in our highest seminaries of learning, of men very eminent in scientific attainments, who have not in themselves the first elements of a teacher, who impart to their students no quickening impulse, whose vast and towering knowledge may make them perhaps a grand feature in their college, attracting to it all eyes, but whose intellectual treasures, for all the practical wants of the students, are of no more use than are the swathed and buried mummies in the pyramids of Cheops. A teacher's seminary, if it were complete, would include in its curriculum of study the entire cycle of human knowledge, so far as it is taught by schools. Our teachers of mathematics and of logic, of law and medicine, need indeed a knowledge of the branches which they are to teach, and for this knowledge they do not need a teacher's seminary. But they need something more than this knowledge. Besides being men of erudition, they need to be teachers, no less than the humbler numbers of the profession, who have only to teach the alphabet and the multiplication table, and there is in all teaching, high or low, something that is common to them all, an art and a skill which is different from the mere knowledge of the subjects, which is not necessarily learned in learning the subjects, which requires special, superadded gifts, and distinct study and training. There is, according to my observation, as great a lack of this special skill in the higher seminaries of learning as in the lower seminaries. Were it possible to have a normal school, not which should undertake to teach the entire encyclopedia of the sciences, but which, limiting itself to its one main function of developing the art and mystery of communicating knowledge, should turn out college professors, and even divinity, law, and medical professors, men who were really skillful teachers, it would work a change in those venerable institutions as marked and decisive as that which it is now effecting in the common schools. Of course, no such scheme is possible, certainly none such is contemplated, but I am very sure I shall not be considered calumnious when I express the conviction that there are learned and eminent occupants of professors' chairs who might find great benefit in an occasional visit to a good normal school, or even to the classroom of a teacher trained in a normal school. I certainly have seen, in the very lowest department of the common school, a style of teaching which, for a wise and intelligent comprehension of its object, 
and for its quickening power upon the intellect and conscience would compare favorably with the very best teaching i have ever seen in a college or university i come back then to the point from which i set out that a normal school or teacher's seminary differs essentially from every other kind of school it aims to give the knowledge and skill that are needed alike in all schools to make the point a little plainer let me restate with what clearness i can some of the elementary truths and facts which lie at the foundation of the whole subject though to many of my readers it may be going over a beaten track it may not be so to all and we all do well even in regard to known and admitted truths to bring them occasionally afresh to the mind as it has already been said a man may know a thing perfectly and yet not be able to teach it of course a man cannot teach what he does not know he must first have the knowledge but the mere possession of knowledge does not make one a teacher any more than the possession of powder and shot makes him a marksman or the possession of a rod and line makes him an angler the most learned men are often unfortunately the very men who have least capacity for communicating what they know nor is this incapacity confined to those versed in book knowledge it is common to every class of men and to every kind of knowledge let me give an example the fact about to be stated was communicated to me by a gentleman of eminent commercial standing in philadelphia at that time the president of one of its leading banks the fact occurred in his own personal experience he was at the time of its occurrence largely engaged in the cloth trade his faculties of mind and body and particularly his sense of touch had been so trained in this business that in going rapidly over an invoice of cloth as his eye and hand passed in quick succession from piece to piece in the most miscellaneous assortment he could tell instantly the value of each with a degree of precision and a certainty of knowledge hardly credible a single glance of the eye a single touch transient as thought gave the result his own knowledge of the subject in short was perfect and it was rapidly winning him a fortune yet when undertaking to explain to a younger and less experienced member of the craft whom he wished to befriend by what process he arrived at his judgment in other words to teach what he knew he found himself utterly at a loss his thoughts had never run in that direction oh he said you have only to look at the cloth and and to run your fingers over it thus you will perceive at once the difference between one piece and another it seems never to have occurred to him that another man's sensations and perceptions might in the same circumstances be quite different from his and that in order to communicate his knowledge to one uninitiated he must pause to analyze it he must separate classify and name those several qualities of the cloth of which his senses took cognizance he must then ascertain how far his interrogator perceived by his senses the same qualities which he himself did and thus gradually get on common ground with him let the receiving teller of a bank be called upon to explain how it is that he knows at a glance a counterfeit bill from a genuine one and in nine cases out of ten he will succeed no better than the cloth merchant did knowing and communicating what we know doing and explaining what we do are distinct separable and usually very different processes similar illustrations might be drawn from artists and from men of original genius in almost every profession who can seldom give any intelligible account of how they achieved their results the mental habits best suited for achievement are rarely those best suited for teaching marlborough so celebrated for his military combinations could never give any intelligent account of his plans he had arrived at his conclusions with unerring certainty 
but he was so little accustomed to observing his own mental processes that he utterly failed in attempting to make them plain to others he saw the points himself with perfect clearness but he had no power to make others see them to all objections to his plans he could only say silly silly that that's silly it was much the same with cromwell it was so with most men who are distinguished for action and achievement patrick henry would doubtless have made but a third-rate teacher of elocution and old homer but an indifferent lecturer in the art of poetry to acquire knowledge ourselves then and to put others in possession of what we have acquired are not only distinct intellectual processes but they are quite unlike in the former case the faculties merely go out towards the objects to be known as in the case of the cloth merchant passing his eye and finger over the bales of cloth but in the case of one attempting to teach several additional processes are needed besides that of collecting knowledge he must turn his thoughts inward so as to arrange and classify properly the contents of his intellectual storehouse he must then examine his own mind his intellectual machinery so as to understand exactly how the knowledge came in upon himself he must lastly study the minds of his pupils so as to know through what channels the knowledge may best reach them the teacher may not always be aware that he does all these things that is he may not always have a theory of his own art but the art itself he must have he must first get the knowledge of the things to be taught he must secondly study his knowledge he must thirdly study himself he must lastly study his pupil he is a teacher at all only so far as he does at least these four things in a normal school as before said the knowledge of the subject is presupposed the object of the normal school is not so much to make arithmeticians and grammarians for instance as to make teachers of arithmetic and grammar this teaching faculty is a thing by itself and quite apart from the subject matter being taught it underlies every branch of knowledge and every trade and profession the theologian the mathematician the linguist the learned professor no less than the teacher of the primary school or of the sabbath school all need this supplementary knowledge and skill in which consists the very essence of teaching this knowledge of how to teach is not acquired by merely studying the subject to be taught it is a study by itself a man may read familiarly the mechanique celeste and yet not know how to teach the multiplication table he may read arabic or sanskrit and not know how to teach a child the alphabet of his mother tongue the sabbath school teacher may dip deep into biblical lore he may ransack the commentaries and may become as many sabbath school teachers are truly learned in bible knowledge and yet be utterly incompetent to teach a class of children he can no more hit the wandering attention or make a lodgment of his knowledge in the minds of his youthful auditory than the mere unskilled professor of a fowling piece can hit a bird upon the wing the art of teaching is the one indispensable qualification of the teacher without this whatever else he may be he is no teacher how may this art be acquired in the first place many persons pick it up just as they pick up a great many other arts and trades in a haphazard sort of way they have some natural aptitude for it and they grope their way along by guess and by instinct and through many failures until they become good teachers they hardly know how to rescue the art from this condition of uncertainty and chance is the object of the normal school in such a school the main object of the pupil is to learn how to make others know what he himself knows the whole current of his thoughts and studies is turned into this channel studying how to teach with an experimental class to practice on 
forms a constant topic of his meditations. It is surprising how rapidly, under such conditions, the faculty of teaching is developed, how fertile the mind becomes in devising practical expedients, when once the attention is roused and fixed upon the precise object to be attained, and the idea of what teaching really is, fairly has possession of the mind. For this purpose, every well-ordered normal school has, in connection with it, as part of its organization, a model school to serve the double purpose of a school of observation and practice. Thus, after these pupil teachers are once familiar with the branches to be taught, and after they have become acquainted with the theory of teaching as a science, it is surprising how soon, with even a little of this practice teaching, they acquire the art. If the faculty of teaching is in them at all, a very few experimental lessons, under the eye of an experienced teacher, will develop it. The fact of possessing within one's self this gift, or power of teaching, sometimes breaks upon the possessor himself with all the force of a surprising and most delightful discovery. The good teacher does not indeed stop here. He goes on to improve in his art, as long as he lives. But his greatest single achievement is when he takes the first step, when he learns to teach at all. The pupil of a normal school gains there a start and an impulse, which carries him forward the rest of his life. A very little judicious experimental training redeems hundreds of candidates from utter and hopeless incompetency, and converts for them an awkward and painful drudgery into keen, hopeful, and productive labor. End of chapter 24